Thank you, praise team. Sometimes you wonder how you can act out your faith and live out your faith practically in your world. And you have a little bit of a struggle determining what God's calling you to do. This summer, one of the things you could do if you have extra time, like sometimes we do and the schedule's a little different, is to help us fill in on Wednesday night with the Care Effect ministries, both community care where we're delivering meals to those who are within our fellowship who have had surgery or other things, or city care where we go out into the city and feed the homeless, the indigent, where we do our tutoring ministries, and uh, just a lot of different things that you could plug into. I hope that you'll consider that this summer as we are going to continue to go out every Wednesday, and there are always folks who are absent during the summer, so it's a good time for you to plug in. I was thinking about our volunteers this morning and uh, thinking about Cody, who does so many different things. You may not know Cody, but he's probably here somewhere. And uh, Yvette Peavy, who works the welcome desk, and folks like Wes Carter, who are always on the doors back there. They are very important people to us, and they carry out a function in the body that is of great benefit to all of us. And as we serve both in this house and outside of this house, we reap the blessings of service. God just enriches our lives because of what we do and and our investment in the lives of others. I like how Andrew ends his article on the front page that he wrote about. He hopes that those uh, bunny friend eagles are getting a little bit of the blessing that he's getting. He's getting even more than them, and that's how it works out serving the Lord. I know some of you, Mike Edens and I, we're going to the convention in the morning. He's leaving early and I'm leaving early. And we'll be in Phoenix for the next three or four days. Part of the reason I'm going is because of the death of our director of missions, Dwayne McDaniel, who was basically our point person for the association. So I'm going to be there helping with the the invitation to the messengers to come to New Orleans next year. And one of the recent developments is that Fred Luter, whom we know and love, is going to be nominated for first vice president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So we're going to be voting on that when we go to the convention in Phoenix. And uh, then we're hoping to follow that up here in New Orleans uh, with his election as president of the Southern Baptist Convention now. It's still uh, a question, but it's something we're talking about very much, and we expect that God is in. So you pray for the convention. We'll have thousands of messengers in uh, Phoenix. There'll be lots of things uh, decided there. Today, I'm in Genesis chapter 25, talking about Isaac and Rebekah. I've been sitting down with the patriarchs through the book of Genesis. We've been sitting down with Abraham and now with Isaac and sort of learning from them. And there is this long discussion about how Isaac's twin boys come into the world. And maybe you've read through it, read over it. Perhaps you're doing the daily Bible readings and you've seen it before. There are lessons in this text I want us to embrace as brothers and sisters. Hi, Kylie. Now, is that Anna right over there? Okay. Anna's here, five days old. Hi, Anna. Welcome to worship. That's terrific. But there are things to learn 
as we read through Genesis 25 that God wants to teach us with this account of Isaac and Rebekah and their two little boys. So I want us to flip over there, and uh, I'm going to start with verse 19 in the reading, okay? Now, if you were to preach this and teach this, you might be emphasizing some other things. I want to pick out three or four things that just kind of emphasize in this text and take a look at, okay? This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. What does Isaac mean, by the way? Laughter. They laughed in their old age when God said, you're going to have a baby boy. So they just named him Laughter. That's what God said. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padam Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Some people think that ought to read, prayed to the Lord with his wife. You could stretch the preposition that way. But they prayed to the Lord because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? Seemed to her like a strange pregnancy. So she went to inquire of the Lord, prayed before those babies were born, then during the pregnancy, she's praying again. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Harry, or Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, some people think grabbing the heel, or supplanter. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, 
I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Twin boys. Are the Bash boys here? We've got a set of twin boys here. We've got a set of twin girls. Uh, Brantley and Rebecca Scott, they got twins. Uh, we've got some other twins. The Bailey boys are twins. And, uh, and we've got two uh, Toops boys that are twins. You know that 32 out of 1,000 live births in the United States are twins. Did you know that Doubting Thomas is called Didymus, which means a twin? We don't know anything else about him. We only have the record of two twins in the Bible, being born in the Bible, these twins, and then Jacob has a son, Judah, who also fathers twin boys in a very seamy story that I won't tell you. Not right now. Okay? Much of the Bible is about sibling rivalry. What's the first sibling rivalry in the Bible? Cain and Abel ended in murder. Cain kills Abel. There are lots of stories in the Bible about siblings who were rivals and fought each other. And Jacob and Esau is such a story. I have a couple of suggestions for you from the text. Love, value, and affirm each child. Each grandchild each of your nephews and nieces. Love, value, and affirm them. The Scripture says, Jesus speaking, look at the birds. They don't sow, reap, gather into barn, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? See, Jesus says, that people have great value. And he values the little ones who come to him. Rebecca and Isaac have this opportunity at parenthood. They are the premier monogamous couple in the patriarchal period. She struggles to get pregnant and after 20 years she does they have these twin boys and they will be the family 
very unwisely, their hearts gravitate toward one and then the other. Aging dad Isaac picks a favorite, Esau. Red and hairy from the very first, an outdoorsman and a marksman, athletic. Dad loves the wild game he brings. He loves Esau. Jacob likes to hang around the tents. He helps his mother. Rebecca loves Jacob. You can't bestow special favor on one brother without saying something about the other. Can you? I think this is recorded. Esau loves is loved by his dad. Jacob is loved by his mother. This is eventually going to unravel this family in a terrible way. This is recorded so that we who live generations later will understand that each child needs our affirmation and love and they are to be valued in and of themselves. And we shouldn't be picking favorites as parents and grandparents. That eventually, that is bad for all the siblings. Not just the ones who were left unpicked, but even the one who was chosen. Think of Joseph, who was favored above all his brothers by his father. His brothers so hated him, they tried to kill him and leave him in a pit. It tore the family apart, this favoritism. I know that you may have a child who either is very much like you and understands you so well or is who you always wanted to be and weren't. And your heart is drawn there. And you want to see that child succeed and blossom. I think about Isaac. He loved his mother, you remember? He grieved the passing of his mother. He brought Rebecca, the scripture says, into his mother's tent. We don't see Isaac out doing military campaigns. In fact, when I look at Esau and Jacob, I see more of dad in Jacob than I do in Esau, and I could be wrong. But I wonder if Esau wasn't the young athlete that dad wanted to be. So his heart is drawn there. We need to make sure that as much as is within us, our children feel equally loved and valued and affirmed. I'm telling you, I think this is the counsel of the Word of God from this story. Hey, wife, husband, don't poison your marriage by how you relate to your children. 
What is the fundamental relationship in a family? The marriage. The best thing you can do for your son or daughter is to have a great marriage. To love each other passionately. What would be of greater value than that? Have a great marriage, wife. Work on that marriage every day. Make it as sweet and wonderful as it can be, husband. And bless your children with a great marriage. Don't undermine your marriage by the way you relate to your kids. This couple, Isaac and Rebecca, have one chance at this with this set of twins. They pick favorites, they go their separate ways, and the wife ends up deceiving the husband in a story we're going to look at later on. But it is a sad state of affairs in the home of Isaac and Rebecca. And eventually it leads to the departure of Jacob for years. He runs because he's afraid his brother will kill him, which likely he would have done. Isaac and Rebecca poisoned their relationship with unwise attitudes and behavior toward their children. Make it the first priority in your home have a healthy marriage, care for one another, love each other. Protect your marriage from the jealousies and envy that come out of favoritism towards siblings. And connect the value of the children to the love of Christ. Jesus loves the children, the little children. We've sung that since we were little. As you cultivate the value in your children and a sense of worth in your children, do so from the point of view of how they are loved by the Father in heaven. That's the value that we have. <laughs> hey, you're just a chunk of coal under pressure and heat till somebody picks you up and values you. And the Father in heaven values you and that's why you have worth. And your worth is infinite in his sight. And if you will connect your own personal value to the love of the Father, you will never have a day in your sojourn on this planet when you feel worthless and of no value. You will always know no matter what is going on that the Father loves you and therefore you are of great worth in His sight. Do not connect the value of your children to how they perform on tests at school. We don't give tests so that we can determine which child is more valuable than the other, do we? The child who gets an A is of same value of the, as the child who gets an F. 
They're all precious in his sight. They are loved by the Father. We're not trying to determine value with tests. We're trying to determine needs. It doesn't matter in regard to value whether your child is intellectually bright or slow. He's still of great value in the sight of God. Here we have a child, Esau, who is athletic. And he loves the open country and he's a great hunter. And a great warrior, as it turns out. Is he of more value than the domesticated Jacob who stays in the tent? Sometimes we communicate to kids that they're of more value if they can throw the baseball farther or faster or if they can run faster or jump higher. And we connect athletic competition to value. And we send the subtle message, you're not worth as much as your brother because he's faster and stronger than you are. And that, my friends, is a lie. It's not true. The children are of equal worth no matter how fast they run or how strong they are. Athletic competition helps with character development. It doesn't tell us how valuable a child is. We need to be careful with this in our culture. I'm afraid that our performance-oriented, materialistic culture is communicating to kids, not only in this room maybe, but the kids out on Bunny Friend Playground and Taylor Playground, that they don't have worth unless they're great singers or great athletes or they have lots of money and power. That their worth is connected to money and power and beauty and athletic ability. I wonder if the young black men in our community would be perpetrators and victims of homicide in the same percentage if they knew that they were all equally loved by the Father. You talk to Marlon Guzman or Ronald Surpass, the sheriff, the chief of police, and they will tell you the homicides often reflect a lack of valuing life. Not only the life of the one being taken, but their own life. Say, what are we doing out on Taylor Playground with basketball and baseball? We are seeking to communicate that every child is of great worth in the sight of the Father because He loves them. And their worth is not connected to how well they perform but connected to the Father in heaven who created them. And they are of great worth in his sight. Our culture is communicating to our children a lie that they are valued based on performance or athletic ability. It's not true. But they're getting the message. And they're saying, my life has no value, nor the lives of others. Brothers and sisters, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, uncles and aunts, we're fighting a battle for the soul of the child. 
Esau and Jacob grew up in a home where their value was determined by athletic ability and giftedness. And it tore apart their family. You know what happened with Esau? His dad loved him. He was the great athlete. His heart went toward him. Esau got to where he thought his value was in how he strung his bow and shot his arrow and brought down the game and how fast he ran and how strong he was. And he didn't need anybody. And here's a dad whose eldest son, by just a minute, places no value in the family leadership. The spiritual responsibilities of being the firstborn, he's not interested in. Esau doesn't value what Isaac values, what Rebekah values, what Jacob values, and what God values. He comes in from the field and he's famished. And I'll bet you he and Jacob have been talking about this birthright. They're twins. Jacob is a supplanter. He's crooked, but I'll tell you one thing about him. He knows what's important. And the birthright is important to him. Jacob has been with his mother in the tents. Esau feels like he doesn't need anybody. He can do it himself. Responsibility for others is a burden to him. He places no value on the birthright, the community responsibility, the leadership of the family. The real skewed value here in this chapter is what happens to favored son Esau, in part because his dad doted on him. He never learned what was important. You know, I'm proud of our athletes like Heath Evans, who had this event here a couple weeks ago and blesses the little children through a foundation that he has formed and who's involved in the community. I mean, he's, he's a hero to me. And I, I believe that our professional athletes and the people in the spotlight ought to be assessed by we who are watching, not based on their native abilities, but based on the responsibility they feel to the rest of the world, to people in need, to the little ones, to folks who have no power or say or money in this world. How about that? How do they treat those? If I understand the scripture right, societies will be judged not by how they treat the powerful, but how you treat somebody who can put no pressure on you. Individuals as well are following the call of God, not just when they hone their gifts until they are at their best. And I believe in that. I believe if God has gifted you, young man, you ought to use that gift. The scripture says your gift makes room for you. 
Your gift is going to make room for you in the world. So don't neglect the gift that is in you, as Paul says to Timothy, through the laying on of his hands. Timothy had a gift. He was prone to neglect it. Don't do that. The giftedness that the Father has given you, you develop it, all right? But do not lose the sense that you are connected to the others, that the children in the community are also under your care, that there are others who are in need, that we are a body and we work together as, as brothers and sisters in the body and God gifts the entire body for the common good. That's why we've got to use our gifts in service to the Father because in so doing we serve one another. And it's why the giftedness is given. God's not interested in exalting you through his giftedness. He's interested in you blessing others through the gift he has given. Esau got that backwards. He ran it inside out. He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. I wonder about young people in this room. You have a great birthright. You got a great name from your parents and grandparents. You are born in a country where you have all kind of resources. You can get an education. You can go to college. You can be who God's called you to be. Sometimes when we are young and foolish, we despise the blessing God's given. I don't need that. Esau says, I don't need that. And he turns his back on the birthright. But one day, he will experience a deep regret with bitter tears for the folly of his youth. One day he will realize what he lost when he did not value what was really important. I've experienced that myself. And if you're very old, so have you. In younger years when we did not understand and made life-changing decisions. And our life turned on that decision. And we look back now and think, I wish I'd been wiser. I wish I'd thought more carefully and taken the counsel of people around me that I loved. I wish I had honored what I inherited instead of despising it. The truth is, a lot of people do like Esau. Run away from what God's blessed them with. And then come back. The return home is a great theme of the Bible. 
You'll be proud of Esau in coming weeks as you read his story. He's going to come to terms with the betrayal of his brother and his mother. Jacob's going to run away, but spiritually, he's going to come back home too. He's going to return to the place where God spoke to him and moved his heart. And there are people in here who when you were young, maybe some time ago, you made a decision that turned your life and now you know it was unwise. But you wonder if there's a way to get back into the favor of the Father whose blessing you rejected. And the answer is yes. This is a book about the story of redemption and restoration. Both redemption and restoration have in their background a fall like Esau's. And the story is this. God's grace is available to you at this time and point in your life. And you can come running back to the Father and He's waiting and watching for you. Jesus told the story of the prodigal son who left and squandered his living and said, I want my inheritance, Dad, I'm getting out of here. Because it happens over and over and over and over and over again in the human family. Young and foolish, it's what we do. But at some point, we hear the Father saying, come back home. Come back home. Come back to what you know is true, to the roots of faith that you were taught. Come back home to the love of the Father and to the Father's arms. You may be thinking, well, I don't want to be no second-class citizen in the Father's house. You won't have to be. For every returning son, he puts on the ring, he puts on the robe, he kills the fatted calf, and he says, we're having a party. And the wonderful thing about grace is it's full restoration. It's fully back into the love of the Father and the family that you left. Let's bow together. Maybe there's somebody sitting here who, who identifies with Esau. You remember the moment your life turned. Would you just ask the Lord... for his forgiveness, his help, his restoration. God, we need you. At every moment in our life, we need you. And Lord, we need you after the failures, after we've fallen, after we've sinned and disappointed you. God, we need you then. Lord, I pray for people in the room who need to come back, that this will be a 
a Sunday of restoration, of a new beginning for them. Thank you for the new beginning we can have in your grace. God, I pray for parents and grandparents. Lord, that you'll give us wisdom in how we relate to the children. God, so they will know they are loved by you. Teach us that grace that comes from your hand and help us love as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.